starting at verse number 16 of John chapter 3. Uh, we've enjoyed being able to share the book of John with you. And uh, this is another chapter that's got certain passages that seem to be a lot more full of things and depth than others. But uh, we're excited about getting into the word of the Lord tonight. So verse number 16, almost everybody whether they're Christian or not, has at least heard this scripture at some point in time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And uh, this has been considered to be everybody's text. You can go to a sporting event and they'll have John 3.16 posted somewhere. You can find it just about anywhere. And, uh, and yet within this one scripture, there's three things that we can draw from it that lets us know what, uh, how great really God is. The first thing here, and I believe this is in your notes, it tells us that the initiative in all salvation lies with God. It lies with God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Sometimes um, Christianity, and we can read the word of the Lord, and we can have discussions uh, with one another, and it's presented in such a way that it sounds as if God has to be pacified, or something that we say or do uh, has to be persuading God to forgive us. And uh, unfortunately, uh, sometimes men even speak as God, you know, being a stern, angry, unforgiving God and, and, and a distant God. And, and even in some of the presentation that I've given here recently, it can come across to a certain way, uh, like when we talked about new birth and baptism, and how our humanity could never dwell with the pure deity of who God is. And that's while that's true, that separation from man and God is not God being separated from us. That's man having separated himself through our sin from the Lord. And, and sometimes we get this idea that it's, that we're trying to get from here to God. And, and we miss out on the fact that it's God is getting to us in order to bring us back with him. Okay? Because remember in John chapter 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also. In other words, even at the end of all of it, it's still going to be the Lord coming to get us to take us to where we should be. Does that make sense? And uh, so John 3, 16 lets us, you can just clearly see that our transformation, our approach to eternal life, everlasting life, it does not originate with us, it originates with God. And we can't present the message in such a way that it sounds as if Jesus is changing his attitude toward us or Jesus, his humanity changes his attitude towards his deity because the Bible says it this way, God is love. His attitude can never change. He loves immensely and uh, 
the whole concept of him becoming a man originated because he loved us or he loved the world. Uh, and so that leads us to the second one. It tells us that the mainspring of God's being is, in fact, love. You know, sometimes you can almost picture in reading scripture that God is sitting in his throne room just getting irritated with humanity because humanity is so dumb. You know, you think about it, and um, and we're, we're disobedient or rebellion, and it's almost like we get this picture of God that says, well, I'm, I'll break them, I'll discipline them, I'll straighten them out, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of them, I'll scourge them, and then they'll come back to me. And it's sometimes easy to think of God as seeking the allegiance of man in order to satisfy some power, if you will, or some authority. And, and, and really, what it really is, is God loves us. God wants to be in communion with every human being. God's love goes beyond who we are to what we are. Okay? We are his created being. And he created us for a purpose of communion. And so it doesn't matter who we have become. He wants to restore us back to what he originally designed us to be, and that's really what salvation is. You know, we've, we, have, we have boxed in the concept of salvation and eternal life into this construct that just says it's heaven or hell. That's what salvation is. And we miss out on eternal life. We talked a little bit about it last week that eternal life kicks in while we're still living this mortal life. We've already stepped into eternal life. It's just that what we classify as eternity has not started yet. Okay? We think eternity starts when the trumpet sounds. Well, the earth may not be over when the trumpet sounds. And so then there's a thousand years of a millennial and then, and then different things that begin to happen. And so then we can say, well, eternity starts when... New Jerusalem is set up in the world and the devil is bound forever into hell and and there's a new earth and a new heaven and, and God is ruling and, and, and all that is fine and well. That, that could be when we consider eternity to start, but eternity starts when we come into contact with Jesus. We are connected already to eternity. And so the concept of salvation is not simply a heaven or hell issue. The concept of salvation is, are you living your life today like you're already living it in eternity? And what this scripture is telling us is that God loved us so much that he wanted to make a way for us to do that. You see, we have the opportunity today to live already like we're in heaven, minus our immortal bodies. <laughs> I feel our mortality every day I get out of bed. But what I'm saying is we have every right and ability and opportunity to worship at the feet of Jesus. We have every opportunity to bask in the blessings of heaven. 
We have every opportunity for the light of the Lamb to shine in our life every day, every hour, at all times. It's, it's, it's not like we're on pause, just trying to make it through, just trying to get to heaven. See, unfortunately, what God is saying here is that whosoever believed in him should not perish. Remember that word perish doesn't mean just to die. It, it, it can also mean just chaos. It can be uh, without purpose. It can be wandering. And, and, and so the concept of perishing isn't just never dying, but living forever. But there's a, there's a, there's a forever type of life that God wants to give us. And when you and I ever understand that, and if we can ever grasp a hold of that, all of a sudden things begin to change because we'll operate our lives in 180 degree difference than what we were because we've compacted everything. So let me put it to you this way. All too often we as believers, we have an experience with God and then for the next season of life, we're trying to prove to God that his experience that he gave us, we were worthy of it. And so we try to pray more and we try to fast more and we try to give more, not because we want to draw closer to him, but because we're trying to prove ourselves worthy of the blessing that he's already given. Okay, that's not what God sent the lamb for. God came so that he that believed in him should have not perished which means that every day we have the opportunity to have brand new experiences with him, not based on our behavior per se, or proving a point to God that we're, we're thankful and we're, but to live everlasting, to live life. Remember Jesus said it this way, I believe it's John 14, six, I am the way, the truth and the life. So when we have this relationship with Jesus, we are already living the eternal life. We're already started it. We just haven't changed into our mortal bodies. And then the third thing that it tells us in this passage though, is the width of the love of God. It's the width. It was the whole world that God loves. It wasn't just a nation. It wasn't just good people. It wasn't only the people who loved him. It was the entire world. And so I believe today that God loves the Satanist. He doesn't approve of him or of his actions, but he loves him. Okay? See, we have misunderstood the concept of love because we have brought love outside of the realm of who God is and put love into the realm of who we are, okay? And so it's the, one of the reasons I believe that Jesus tells us to love your enemies because Jesus understood what love is. You can, just because you love someone doesn't mean that you are supporting what's happening in their life right now. Just because you have love for something, it doesn't mean that it's absolutely pure and righteous. It just means that you're having the love of God for them. And unfortunately, here's what we've done. We've said, oh, well, that person's not really that lovable. They really get under my skin. They, 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 they know how to, what we call grace builders. They build grace in our lives. They, you, we just, you just know what they do. 
But if you step back and remember the people that Jesus gathered around him, he gathered the person that was going to betray him. Uh, one preacher said it this way, even Jesus had a devil in his group. And yet Jesus loved Judas Iscariot. Because the love of God, because God, well, let me put it to you this way. What are, what are three character descriptions of God that just about everybody knows? He is omniscient, all-knowing, um, omnipotent, all-powerful, and he's everlasting. Okay? But the Bible says it this way. God is love. God is love. So every time you make a decision to love, you are making a godly decision. Because love is not a human emotion. Love is not really even a human decision. Love is the expression of God in somebody's life. They may just not understand what that is. Every time you look at your spouse and you tell them you love them, what you're really telling them is, I want God in your life. Does that make sense? Since he's love? Now, we never think in those terms. It's the reason why uh, there's, there's certain phrases that rub me the wrong way. And we would, we would consider them, or I've always considered them, you know, somebody cussing. But have you ever heard just somebody, and I know this is on video and it's class, this is college, this is Grace College. Have you ever heard anybody use the terms uh, GD, goddamn? Have you ever heard that? Somebody say that? Okay, they don't even realize what they're saying because it's just become popular vernacular. But what they're really saying when they say it is they're wanting God to damn something, to bring condemnation to something. They may not even think that that's what they're really saying or what their intention is, but because they're using those words, those words are saying exactly that. I wish that somebody, when they would get upset, would say, God, love them. Be totally different, wouldn't it? God, release your love in there. And you want to know what else? When that mentality changes from the, the way that people cuss to the way that say, God, love them, what, what, what would happen is... Uh, Romans, uh, I believe it's Romans chapter 12, verse 29, they are overcoming evil with good. And when they do it, uh, try it sometime. When somebody's absolutely getting on your nerves and you're just wanting to blast them, just say, God love you. And just see how much more upset they get. Because Romans 12 says it's like heaping coals of fire on your head. When you don't respond in kind, when you don't respond outside of the parameters of God, you are when you respond to something in love, you are responding in God language. That's what John 3.16 reveals to us, that God so loved the world. The width of his love is immense. He loves everybody. He loves the sinner. He loves the drug addict. He loves the politicians. He loves everybody. And the thing is, is we need to allow, if we're going to be the children of God, we've got to take on the traits of God and express the love of God through us. 
And Jesus over and over in the scriptures and the, the epistles uh, uh, urge us and, and command us even to love. Uh, the greatest of the two commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. We need to, and the reason why that commandment is so powerful is not simply because it makes more peaceful times with your neighbors. It's because you are releasing God when you love your neighbor. Because God is love. It's, a, it's so much deeper than just God loving us. God's loving us so that we would release his love to others. And it's really a mentality it's really a, it's a change when God, when you and God really unite, there's a change in the way you think, the way you speak, the way you act, and it becomes something that will take you into areas and arenas that you never dreamed you'd walk because you're loving those that are unlovable. I mean, you think about it. You think about one person that you just really can't handle. Because we've all got them. Everybody's got a thorn in the side. Everybody knows somebody that just drives them crazy. Even if we don't know them personally. Think of a politician that's driven you crazy. Think of an actor, an actress, or a, or, or a boss, or a CEO, or whatever. And take a step back and look at them and say, but God loves them. And if God loves them, how can I hate them? And if God would send himself in flesh, send the son, if God would do that for them, what am I willing to do for them? You see, I'm of the opinion, and I'm sure you probably are too, that this world would be a much better place if God's love was expressed. And that's always a utopia, if you will. But it doesn't start with John Doe. It starts with the children of God. And we have to love. It's one of the reasons why six months ago I was worried of all the posting and almost the vitriol and hatred in the political season because I was like, there's a lot of quote-unquote Christians that are not revealing the love of God because they're not getting their way. And, and that's a dangerous thing to walk down. Does anybody have any questions on this scripture, verse 16, or comments? Excellent. All right, let's read John 3, 17, and we'll go through 21. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. There is a paradox, if you will, in this part of the passage of John 3, and that is the two-sided nature 
of Almighty God. But there's a love side, but there's also a judgment side of God. Uh, I can't remember the scripture. I want to say it's in Corinthians. Uh, I'll have to look it up and get back with you on it. But uh, behold the two faces of God. There is uh, two expressions of God. God does have judgment and God does have love. Here's the thing that we have to remember, that when God is there, when it's God, judgment is always springing from love, not the other way around. Okay? In other words, the condemnation doesn't spring on people first to, to love. God judges you because he loves you. He doesn't love you because he judges you. You can write that down because if we can ever get that, it'll change our lives. God does not love us, or God does not judge us in order to love us. He loves us in order to judge us. In other words, when God sends judgment, he does so out of love. His love, and so judgment is for one purpose, and that is to reveal to us who we are, and if it's coming from God's love that he judges us, it reveals us for the need of him. Okay, that's what his judgment is all about. But the flip side that we end up having a mindset up of in a lot of uh, denominational Christianity throughout history has bought into this is that he judges us in order to love us. In other words, we have to get ourselves free of the judgment in order to be loved by God. That's not how God operates. God operates by loving us. And because he loves us first, he judges us so that we can be revealed to us who we are so that we are pricked in our hearts to cry out to him to help us. He doesn't wait for us to pass judgment to say, I love you. He loves you first. Judgment is always based in love and love is never based on judgment. Never. And, and we would do well as humans to adopt the same mentality. Because usually what we do is we love somebody after we've judged them. I like that guy. I like that girl. I think, okay, I'll, I'll give my love to them. I love this relationship. But this guy, mm, man, he just, I can't deal with that. And so we don't express love. God does it. If God did that with all of us, none of us would be loved. Because Romans 6 says that we've all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. And if so, if he loves us based off of judgment, our judgment, we stand no hope. But because God loves, he sends judgment. And so it's, it's kind of like this. It's, it's really, uh, it's a parental type deal. Okay. I love my son so much that I'm going to judge his actions, not in order to control or to punish but in order to draw him back to the where God really has them. Does that make sense? Where the flip side, an abusive relationship is, son, you're a moron, so I'm not going to love you. Or son, you've done a great job, so I am going to love you. You got straight A's this trimester, so let's have a party 
but you struggled and you didn't get straight A's, you got C's and D's, so no party for you. Okay, you see the, the flip side of that? That's, that's kind of where God says, I'm going to love you, let's have a party, and then we'll see about your grades. And then also, then, so let me try to explain it a little bit more. So if I'm coming from the way that humans do it oftentimes, I am basing my response to my son based off of his academic prowess. And if it's good enough, I'll love him. If it's not good enough, I don't. See what I'm saying? Where God says, I love you, it doesn't matter what happens, but now let's look at your report card. You got all C's and D's. What can we do to improve it? It's a lot different approach than, than what we're used to. And so you take it away from just a report card and you take it from your walk with God and your self-talk. Well, God, I've messed up all week long. There's no way you can love me because I've judged myself unworthy already. Can I just tell you that the concept of human unworthiness is a tool of the adversary to keep us away from God. There, there's nowhere in Scripture that tells us that we're unworthy. Nowhere. It tells us that we're miserable. miserable. It tells us that we're unclean. It tells us that there's no good in us. There's no righteousness in us. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. It tells us that we are strangers and foreigners. It tells us all kinds of things about us, but nowhere in there, the only place where unworthy, the concept of unworthy comes into play in Scripture is Paul quoting, if man takes part in communion unworthily. And yet we have transposed unworthiness because of our sin or our unworthiness because our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing good in us. Our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And we have claimed that that is an unworthy situation. And so we have had this conversation just recently with people. I'm not worthy to be baptized. I'm not worthy of the things of God. I'm not, where did you get that? Show me in scripture where you're unworthy. Because here's the worth of who you are at no matter what stage in life you're at, if you are a drop-dead sinner, if you all of your good is evil, if you are just a terrible person in reality, the Bible still says he died for you. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. If Christ saw that you were unworthy, why would he die for you? Unless somebody think that, well, no, he died for the good people. No, no, no. He died for whosoever will. He died, the, the Bible says that Jesus hung on the cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That act of forgiveness was not just to a couple of people. That was to humanity. Forgive them for they know not what they do. And the devil has come along and used the concept of sin and shortcoming and made people feel like they were unworthy Listen, the price has already been paid. It was his blood for God so loved the world. And so if you believe on him, there is no condemnation. There is no concept 
of unworthiness. Does that, does that make sense? Are you, are you following? Because it's a totally transformed way of thinking. And here's what it does if people will really be honest with themselves, because we all still make mistakes. It doesn't matter how long you serve God, you're all, everybody's going to make a mistake. Everybody's going to commit a sin. Everybody's going to do something stupid. Okay? But if you understand that your price take for who you are was the blood of the Lamb on Calvary, that mistake that you made will not condemn you, but it will convict you. It will draw you back into his arms instead of push you away. It's when you forget how worthy you actually are. It's, it's when you forget how worthy God even thinks of who you are. When you remember that, or when you forget that, that's when you feel like running away and hiding. But when you can remember the worth of who you are, the worth of your soul, the love that God has for you, all of a sudden that changes how you respond to him when you do mess up. And this passage comes in. The reason why somebody's condemned is because they don't believe because they've already ignored the fact that there's a God. That's the only reason why they're condemned. Because they haven't believed in who he was. And, and really what that means is somebody has chosen darkness over light, according to verse 19 and verse 20. They've, 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 they've rather live in the shadows than to dwell in the light. Okay? Um, and so John is, and, and here again, remember as we talk through this entire book, the foundation that John laid in chapter 1. The great creator of the universe that created all things by speaking it into existence became a man and paid a price so that you and I could become in, become like him, but to have communion with him and dwell with him. Okay? And now the rest of the book of John is letting us know and building pillars to prove that point. So John 3.16 isn't a gospel. And John 3.17 through 21, none of these verses are gospel or doctrine or creed that's based on its on its own it's all based on the fact that God became flesh and dwelt among us and released his glory into our lives and in John 1 it says we beheld his glory okay does, that, does anybody have any comment or question in that passage it's powerful I know because it's it's life transforming now, before we leave that passage, I want to just share one other thing. If, if you want to write in your Bibles or something next to that, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, really. Well, fairly well-known passage of Scripture. But Paul said it in Romans 12 uh, that, let me just turn over instead of trying to quote it. So I don't miss it. After all these years, I shouldn't. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So if you tie chapter Romans chapter 12, verse 2, with this passage, it's a mindset.
the mindset is I'm going to believe what he says and not believe what the darkness says. So when you combine those two passages, those two principles, you all of a sudden get a weapon that you can use in order to come against the adversary that will try to put you down and make you feel insignificant. And that is simply your mind needs to operate correctly. And if your mind is operating correctly, your mind is dictating to your emotions. Because here's what happens most often. The people that look down on themselves and think that they are unworthy do so because of an emotional trauma. Now, trauma sounds like a big word. An emotional trauma could just be stubbing your toe and saying the wrong thing and all of a sudden you feel guilty. Okay, it doesn't need to be this huge thing. It just needs to be something that triggers a thought in you that says, how can God love me? Okay? And so if you let your emotions dictate to you, your emotions are going to take you this kind of a, a life. You're just going to go up and down, and when, when everything's going smooth, your emotions are going to tell you God loves you, and, and you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and, and I don't even know where they got that saying, but the greatest thing around. But then all of a sudden something happens, and you barked at your husband or your wife or your kid or your dog, and, and all of a sudden your emotions take you down, and you're like, oh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm no good. I'm just, and so you're up and you're down and you're up and you're down because you're being led around by your emotions. But if you'll transition from your emotional thinking and be transformed by the renewing of your mind, all of a sudden what ends up happening is I kick the dog, but Jesus still loves me. And I'm sorry about kicking the dog, and I'll fix that and get repentance, but because God still thinks this highly of me, I'm not going to dip down to the valley. And I'm going to stay up above the waves. Okay, does that make sense? And so, if you read this passage again, the reason that we have the man Christ Jesus is to create a way for us to elevate ourselves through believing, which believing is first a head thing, and then it's a heart thing. The, the, the mind and then the emotions. And if I can believe on him, then I'm not going to have any condemnation. No matter what I do, I recognize my worth. And my worth was the ultimate price at Calvary. And if he loved me that much, I can give it another shot, no matter how I'm feeling. Isn't that exciting to be able to, to know that you're good in God's eyes, even when you act like a jerk? Doesn't mean he's pleased. Listen, when my, my boys act like a jerk, I get ticked off. But my love never wavers. And because I love them, I will address them and discipline them. And God does the same thing because the Bible says whom he loves, he chasteneth. It's not, he's not tolerating your behavior. He's recognizing the person behind the behavior and that the behavior can be modified if the person would start thinking right. See, all of our misbehavior is because we don't think right. 
all of it. We're not thinking right at that moment in time. You know, it's, we were teasing my youngest tonight because when he was a kid, he was fearless. You know, we were, we were commenting, oh yeah, the iron's hot, and he'd start heading toward it just to see how hot it was. Well, I got to thinking about it. I was that kind of kid. But I was that kind of kid when the cars still had the old cigarette lighters that you pushed in and got real hot. And there was a moment that I really wasn't thinking, oh, that's really red. See what that feels like, okay? Now, was I an absolute moron in that moment? Probably. But overall, and so my parents could have done one of two things. They could have blasted me out of the water for my idiocy, or they could have said, well, did you learn your lesson? I've never done it again. Now, putting a tongue on a light bulb, I did that too, but there's a... There was a few things when I was a kid. But do you understand what I'm saying? God doesn't approve of it, your behavior, but God doesn't dislike you because of your behavior. God doesn't. See, we have, we've had this mentality in church for too long that God is just waiting up in heaven and looking over the balconies of heaven, waiting for you to mess up so he can slap you around. And so we've got people that are living in absolute fear and terror of God and worried about making mistakes. I want my kids to try things, and if they mess up, we'll fix it. But if they don't try it, we'll never know, okay? God wants us to try things, to jump out where it's not comfortable, to step out on the water like Peter did. See, think of, just think of that now that I think about Peter walking on water. What, what actually happened there? He steps out of the boat, he's walking, and he's looking at Jesus, and everything gets around him, and he freaks out, and he looks down, and he starts to sink, and, and not once do I hear Jesus say, well, you dummy. No. What happens? Jesus reaches his hand down to him, gets him in the back of the boat, and then he says, why do you have such little faith? Let's fix it. There is no condemnation. Let's just take care of it. I still love you. You're still the cornerstone of my church. Upon this rock, the, upon the message that Peter's going to preach, that's what my church is going to be built on, even though you took your eyes off me for a second and began to sink. Even though in a couple of weeks or months you're going to deny me outright, <laughs> I'm still going to use you. Because it's love first, then judgment, not judgment, then love. All right, verse 22 through verse 30. Don't think that handout's happening, Dwayne. <laughs> After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized and John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying and they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth and all men come to him. 
John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am set before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This is my joy, therefore, or this my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Um, we've already seen that part of the aim of, of John is to ensure that John the Baptist gets put in its proper perspective. See, at this time, John the Baptist had his own disciples. And not because, I don't believe it was because John the Baptist was trying to, you know, compete with Christ. Obviously, that is not the case. But there were people, just like there are, lack of a better term, disciples of different preachers in the world today. And, uh, and so we see this here in this passage. Uh, and, and John is giving us a picture of, you see, we get, let me step back just a second. The picture of John the Baptist is this maniac out in the wilderness, okay? And, and dressed like a crazy man, eating like a crazy man, preaching like a crazy man. And uh, yet John the Baptist is coming across in this part, especially in this passage, um, as a humble, obedient servant of God, uh, full of humility, and uh, is willing to take the second seat, if you will. Uh, you have to remember a couple of things. John the Baptist was six months older than Jesus. Uh, they were cousins. And uh, I've got a cousin that's nine months older. And growing up, he was the older one. And, uh, but he was a lot like John the Baptist as well because when things started equaling out, now he's still a little bit bigger than I am, but uh, I, I still probably couldn't take him physically, but uh, I'll debate him any day, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but but that's, that's John the Baptist's mentality, and yet John the Baptist says, I've got to step back. My time's already done, it's now something else is shifting. That's full of humility. And he tells his disciples three things, and this, this is in your notes here. First of all, he tells them that he never expected anything else. He assured them that Christ was, or that John the Baptist was not the leading one. He was the forerunner. He was the one that was paving the way for somebody that was greater. He was a herald, if you will, for Christ to come. It would ease the things of God today if we had more people worried about being forerunners and not being the leader. And uh, Jesus, who is the ultimate leader, was the one that got down and washed the disciples' feet. It was Jesus, the ultimate leader, that paid the ultimate sacrifice. It wasn't the disciples. And uh, John the Baptist is expressing this. He didn't expect anything else. He knew that God had given him a subordinate task. He, he knew that God had given him um, a certain slot in the realms of the prophets, if you will. And unfortunately, uh, I'll just take you back. Things may have changed, but I'll take you back into the late 80s, early 90s. 
And uh, we had people that came to Bible school that their only prerequisite that was their hope was that they would come out of Bible school and they would have a full-time pastor and they'd be pastor of a church. They'd, they'd be leading they'd, at 23 years old, you know. And unfortunately, there was, in, in my opinion, there's too many people that look at opportunities that God places in their lives as stepping stones instead of places to plant themselves. Um, I was blessed because I was raised in a home that didn't believe in that. So it was never expressed to me that one ministry was a stepping stone to the other. My dad was a youth pastor for 25 years. And uh, he, he basically never left. He was always a youth leader. And uh, I saw that. I, I experienced that growing up. So when I took the youth pastor's job in Dover, uh, Delaware in 1988, I thought I was in Dover forever. In fact, I married somebody from Dover, so I thought I was there forever. And uh, at the end of five years, God just opened up another door and felt like he was leading Trish and I to go to Kansas City. When we took that position in Kansas City, we thought we'd be in Kansas City forever. We lived that way, we operated that way, we ministered that way, we were never leaving. And uh, then when God opened up the door to come here, our mentality was, and still is, we're not going anywhere. And now that I'm 50, I'm praying to God that we're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, you, you know, um, then again, at the same time, there was a member of this church, uh, probably four or five years before we came, his name was Rudy Bowe. He married uh, Pastor Gary's mother uh, after their first spouses had passed away. Uh, he retired at the age of 65 and went and planted a church in Grand Rapids. So he retired from secular work in order to go plant the church at 65, and that church is still up and running. Uh, some friends of ours are pastoring that church, and uh, it's, it's amazing to see. Um, so who knows, maybe I'll turn 65 or 70 and God will have something else at that time for me. But that's a good 25 years down the road. <laughs> Number two, he told them that no man can receive more than God gave him in this passage. A man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. Now, see, if we would have taken out of the preacher realm, because John the Baptist was a preacher, Jesus was a minister, teacher, preacher, take it out of that realm and just to everyday life, if we can adopt these three points of John the Baptist, we would recognize ourselves as who we are and be honored by who we are instead of comparing ourselves to the person that sits down the row from us. There's a lot of people that get so frustrated because they're not doing a certain ministry or they're not having something happen in their lives. They're not operating in some way. Maybe you weren't called to be that or to do that. That's okay. You were called for something else. Okay? Now, this church would be in much better shape and much skinnier if I was in charge of cooking. Because we'd be doing a whole lot of fasting. But God didn't call me to the food ministry. He called Kim. And so I blame all my weight on her. 
Does that make sense? Everybody has a spot, a niche. God has something for you, and not one is better than the other. You know, a lot of people take a phrase in scripture that says the highest calling is to be a preacher. Uh, I understand what that is saying, but the problem is, is who would I preach to unless we had a greeter? Who would I preach to unless we had somebody showing up to the church and cleaning it every week? Do you see the, the correlation there? Everybody has a role to play and who's to say in fact, I, I know because I've just done some interviews for a video we're going to present on Sunday that one of the things in this church is I feel so loved, I feel so accepted. Well, that doesn't come from me because I don't see them first. Somebody else is seeing them first. Somebody else is greeting them. Somebody else is talking to them. Somebody else they are experiencing contact with somebody in our church before they get to me. And if they're feeling that, and that's one of their draws, we need to have people in place that do it the right way. Does that you mean, you understand what I'm saying? And John is recognizing that a subordinate role, a leadership role, quote unquote, is a secondary role to him. And to do a secondary task for God is a great task. Does that make sense? And so um, there was one lady by the name of Mrs. Browning. She said it this way. All service ranks the same with God. Any task for God is necessarily great. If it's a card in the mail, if it's a smile across a cash register, it's just as important as breaking down scripture. It's just as important as singing the best song playing the instrument the best. It's, there's Everybody has their place. I preached a little bit on it last Sunday. I'll preach a little bit more on it this Sunday. But being fitly framed together, okay? Being fitly framed together. That means God takes all of the different pieces and puts us together so that we uh, can um, become the best that we want. I don't like... Cross, or not, I love crossword puzzles. I don't like jigsaw puzzles. I'm not the kind of person that can sit there and all week long put one piece or two pieces in and then go, that's not me. Um, but I, 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 I love watching, my grandmother was one, and I would go over there and she'd be working on this puzzle for three weeks. You know, one of those 2,000 piece, figure it all out. And I would always laugh because she would get so mad because she'd get done and there'd be one or two pieces missing. Okay? So she had 1998, but she didn't have 2000. Okay? And so the puzzle wasn't complete. The church can have the 1998, but if two pieces are missing, the church isn't complete. Every task that God has is a great task and a necessary task. You pull out one piece of the puzzle, the puzzle is never complete. John is understanding that. Both John the writer and John the Baptist are explaining to us 
in this passage, if you read between the lines, and not even so much reading between the lines, John the Baptist straight out says it. I'm not the Christ, but I'm sent before him. And then he goes on in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. There is something that happens. John knew his place. John knew what place on the puzzle he fit. And he understood that his puzzle piece was the puzzle piece that was going to connect the next great one, which was Jesus. And then Jesus was going to use the disciples to connect and Paul to connect. And then all the way down to 2021, he's grabbed you and I. And he's putting us in this puzzle of time, much greater than 2,000 pieces, by the way. And yet, if we get frustrated because we're not the colorful one, we're just the green corner. And we're not the purple lilac. Or even go plainer than that, we're not the gray cloud in the background, or we become the gray cloud, and that's just not that important. We want to be the vibrant flower. But without the gray cloud in the background to give water to the flower, the flower doesn't grow. There is pieces that God has put together. There really is no secondary task, if you think about it. Every task, every spot, every puzzle piece is absolutely vital to what God is building. And then that leads us to my number two or three. Number three, he called Jesus the bridegroom and himself the friend of the bridegroom. This lets us know, or lets us see a picture of what Christ is to us. Paul plays off of this in Ephesians chapter 5 when he likens that he may present himself a bride without spot or wrinkle. And uh, even more importantly than that, or not more importantly, John recognizes himself as a friend of the bridegroom. Now, that doesn't mean much to you and I, because in modern day wedding planning, you either hire a wedding planner or you do it yourself for the most part. And uh, But in the Jewish culture, the friend of the bridegroom was responsible to, they were the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. So they set up the feasts, they set up the invitations, they set up the wedding, they, they, they presided over the wedding feast. They did, the friend of the bridegroom had a, a very important role that connected, if you will, connected people or connected the two people, the bride and the bridegroom together. So what John is saying is, I'm the connect point, if you will, but I'm not the point. I'm the connect point to get people to Christ, but I'm not the Christ. And you and I would be wise to understand that we are the bride, but we are also the friend of the bridegroom. We are the ones that express the, pre the, the presence of the bridegroom in the world today. It's, the, it's the, one of the reasons why I believe the local church is so very vital to the kingdom of God. Because you can have these national groups of people, and I'm not against it, I'm a part of one, but that national group, when I'm connected with somebody in Louisiana, they don't know the culture of Minnesota. And unless they grab a hold of the culture and adapt to the culture of Minnesota, they won't understand how 
we attract people to Christ because we don't do it like Louisianians do. Okay? And uh, because our cultures are totally different, our personalities are different. Uh, and, and so when you try to adapt what one church is doing in Louisiana to the things in Minnesota, it could fall flat. They could try to adapt what we do here and bring it down there and it would fall flat there. It's, it's, we've got the local church is the friend of the bridegroom. It's the one that introduces the unknown to the known, the sinner to the one that can change them into a saint, the friend of the bridegroom. And then to close out chapter three, verse 31, he that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly. He that speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, and that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Okay, again, if you're taking notes in your Bible reading, John chapter 1. It's a reiteration, really, in a different terminology, I guess, is the word for it, uh, of this. Here's what he's, he's really basically saying, is the only one that can speak of heavenly things is he who came from heaven. Who's the only one that's ever come from heaven? Where did Jesus come into existence? Christmas. Away in a manger. Jesus came into existence at Bethlehem. So the only one that came from heaven was God. How did God come? As Jesus, as his humanity. Okay, so that's why he's now saying, and what he has seen and heard that he testifies. What Jesus is going to be speaking and doing, he is speaking and doing on behalf of deity. So that when Jesus spoke, he was literally speaking the words of God because God was now made, made flesh. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so if you keep on going down here, uh, verse 34, from God has sent... Let me just let me just stop there. If you believe that there are three persons in the Godhead, and one part of the Godhead sent the other person of the Godhead, in verse number twenty or verse number thirty-four, which part of the Godhead sent the other part? It doesn't say. It says God. God sent. God gives not the Spirit by measure of him. Okay. The Father loves the Son. Well, so now we're assuming that the Father is somebody different to send the Son. Okay, that, that's not... God, as a spirit, as an originator, as the pater, P-A-T-E-R, it's the Greek word for Father, the beginning, the originator. He loves the Son. The Son is a begotten one. Okay, something that comes into existence. Well, in the eyes and in the ears of God, what came into existence? 
his humanity. He took on humanity. So that's why the Father loved the Son. Deity, the originator, the one that spoke all of creation, and he loves what he became as a man, Christ Jesus. And he's given all things into his hand. Okay? So if there was two people, the Father is now giving up everything to the Son. Isn't that what it's saying? So if you believe in God the Father and God the Son, why would you pray to God the Father? He doesn't have any power. Why would you lean on God the Father? According to this scripture, he's given everything over to Jesus. Why would you be baptized in the name of the Father? He doesn't have any power. He can't do it. He's given it all up according to this scripture. But if you believe in deity, deity has given it all to the man Christ Jesus because deity is the man Christ Jesus. And in the role of a man, he possesses all the power to unite us to wit that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world unto himself. And if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there's coming a day when the Bible says all will be put under his feet and there won't be any more need for a mediator. The humanity of God will not be needed anymore because we will be dwelling with Almighty God himself in glory, in the glorified state of who Jesus is right now. And so there is no two different people here. There's only one, God manifest in the flesh or God the word who became flesh in John 1 1 he is deity is loving his humanity and he's given the humanity why did God give everything to his humanity why did deity give everything to humanity nobody okay it is his plan but why was it the plan? Why, why did he have to give it all to Jesus? The reason is, is because Jesus was the sacrifice. Jesus was the payment. Jesus was the, the one that became sin for us that would cancel out all of the judgment. Jesus was the one that was going to become the bridge that gapped, that, the, the man that would gap the bridge, or bridge the gap between deity and humanity so that we can dwell with him. It was Jesus that was going to be the ultimate one that would allow us to get to him. That's the whole plan and the purpose was that God would become a man so that in his humanity, he could make a way for you and I to cross over into his glory. That's why in verse 36, after it's all given over to him, that's the reason why the scripture doesn't say he that believeth in God has everlasting life. It's he that believeth in the Son, in the one named Jesus, the man, his humanity that was going to pay a price. That's the difference between the Father and the Son. And because of that, John is now saying here, and, and you kind of, between verse 30 and 31, 
Nobody knows for sure if it's still John the Baptist that's talking or if John the Revelator, the writer, has put some insert into it and begins to expound on what John the Baptist is saying. Um, but there again, he's reaffirming for the readers what he started in John chapter 1. Okay? So you think about it. You think about how well the Holy Ghost inspired these men to write when they tie it together so well. He introduces it all in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he gives, gives us a glimpse of the beginnings of the revealing of the power that Jesus had. In chapter 3, he deals with the new birth experience based off of what he already established in John chapter 1. We come, that's through Nicodemus and the, the, the conversation that he had. Then we come over here to John and the, the uproar of John's disciples saying, you know, this, this guy's baptizing now and, and which one are we supposed to believe? And, and John stepping on the scene and saying, no, 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 it's not me, it's him. Okay? It's not me. I was sent to bear witness of the light, but I'm not that light based off of John chapter 1. Okay? Do you, do you so are you seeing that this whole book of St. John is the, the peeling back of who God Almighty is? That when you look in the face of Jesus, you are seeing the creator of the universe like never before. And John is peeling, or John the writer is peeling this all back, and he gets to this area here where John the Baptist is talking, and he introduces another principle into the revelation of Jesus by introducing the bride and the bridegroom and, and, and how all of that works together. And, and you have to understand again and remember that he's writing both to Jew and to Greek. And it's tying it all together and he gets here towards the end of chapter 3 and now once again he's reaffirming after the wedding in Cana, after the conversation with Nicodemus, after the, the, the conversation between John the Baptist and his disciples, now he steps back in in verse 31 to 36, he reestablishes or reacquaints us with John chapter 1, that it's the great God of the universe that in the beginning said, let there be, became a little baby in Bethlehem and is now rising up as a man to create a way. You also have to remember two things in this scriptures. John is writing in 100 AD. This is probably 70 years or so after Christ had already died, resurrected, and ascended. So he's writing in hindsight as he's putting this together. But then on top of that, were the readers in 100 may have had some of these deals and the, the letters of the churches, but it wasn't codified into one book. So if somebody that was in Ephesus where John wrote didn't get the read the letters to the Corinthian church, they couldn't bounce off what Paul was saying to the Corinthian church and John was saying to the Ephesian church. Okay? And if they didn't have the letter from Peter in his two letters that he wrote, they may not have, in other words, what I'm saying is we can now look back and we've got the whole thing right in front of us and we can tie what the Apostle Paul says and, and the Apostle Peter says and what John says and we'll talk about Luke and Matthew and all the different writers of Scripture. They all write together, and, and but they didn't know what they were writing together. They may have seen some of it, but not all of it. And yet, 
in every instance, it's just the peeling back more of who God Almighty is. And yet we have still barely scratched the surface. It's amazing to me how little we really know about God. We still see through a glass darkly. That's why it says in verse 36, he that believeth on the Son. I close with this tonight. We've got about 10 minutes, but I close with this. The concept of believing, and then we're going to start chapter 4 next week. The concept of believing. Believing is always a progression into the depths of understanding. Okay? You can believe on one hand, but question at the same time until you build the case. Okay? Uh, I like reading like spy novels, CIA kind of things where they figure out all the different things and FBI and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that always pops up in these books, inevitably, in every one of them, is the private investigator or the, the policeman or the CIA guy or whatever always makes a statement at the beginning saying, I know that I believe this guy's innocent or guilty, but I can't prove it. So I start with my belief, now I'm going to prove it. Okay? The problem with too many people is they think that the concept of belief is a one-time thing. Okay? But the word believeth, both in verse 16 and in verse 36 and elsewhere in Scripture, if you do a search on that, it's not a one-time belief. belief. It is a constant believing and building upon that. Can I tell you why I believe so strongly in Jesus today is not because of a one-time experience with him, but it's now 40 years of one thing after another. Bible terminology, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Just So the concept of believing isn't, there is a mentality in some churches today, just believe on him and you're saved but they won't tell you what that word belief means. He that believeth must believe that there is a God, but yeah, well, I believe that there's a God. I believe in Jesus. Well, you're good then. Well, you've started. But the concept of believing is, are you going to take and pull the thread to reveal everything else that's behind it? Are you going to go, I believe, so I'm going to search and I'm going to seek to know him better? And when I know and understand that the depths of God are without understanding, we'll never get it all, it means that believing is an active pursuit of Jesus. That's why the Bible says, He that believeth on the Son shall have eternal life, or everlasting life. Because the person that believes in Him will never stop pursuing Him. And because you'll never stop pursuing Him, you aren't going to stop until you get to that place where he is. Until you catch him. So if you can picture the concept of believing, 
is a pursuit or a chase. You're chasing God. Tommy Tenney wrote a book several years ago called God Chasers. It was a fantastic book um, that basically lets us know that if we would ever stop chasing our kingdoms and chase him, uh, life would be radically and drastically different. But the concept of believing is not a mental ascent. It's an active pursuit of the spirit. And so if I ask somebody, do you believe in Jesus? And they say yes, but they're not willing to pursue him. All they believe is a story about Jesus. And there's a difference about believing about Jesus and believing in or on Jesus. The believing in or on will always cause you to pursue him. The believing about, it just, be, I, you know, you can believe anything that you want to believe. Just read the internet. You'll find all kinds of things that you can latch a hold of. You know, recently it's the belief that the election was, 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 wrong or bad or stolen or and then it's the next and, and the the media uses the term conspiracy theory whether or not it's true whether or not it's not nobody really knows because it just depends on who you believe who you listen to okay I want to believe him because I want to pursue him and in my pursuit to him I am revealing my belief in him it's the reason why when the disciples said, Lord, I believe, help by mine unbelief, what are they really saying? They're saying, Lord, I do believe you, but I don't know everything. And really, quite frankly, God, I, don't, I mean, think about this. Think, put yourself in their shoes. Lord, I, I, I believe you called me to do this, but you're going to have to help my unbelief because I don't see how I'm going to do what you're asking me. Think about it. Think about those disciples. They got glimpses about what God was going to have them do. And tradition tells us they died terrible deaths, most of them. And yet, I believe that what they were saying, Lord, I believe, I trust you. I believe in you. You're going to have to help me on all this other stuff. And so I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to keep in contact. I'm going to live for you. But you're going to have to help me. Okay? Because I can't see me preaching. I can't see me starting a ministry in a city. I can't see me doing, I can't, you're, you're saying, you're, you're doing a lot of different things here, God. Help my unbelief. Here's what I fear. I fear that there are too many people in the world that believe that there is a God. Some that even believe that Jesus is that God. But that's the extent of their belief. Instead of taking what they believe and pursuing it and challenging themselves to dig deeper. I'm not just talking about people that are not saved. One of the things that I commend you for being here on Monday nights is because we're digging deep. And I sense as a teacher the heartbeat of you in this room and those that have commented online and some that aren't able to be here tonight, you're drawn to know more about him. What is that really? Believing. 
You're believing in him. And because you believe in him, it's not enough just to know about him. You want to know him. And you want to dig deeper. That's, and when you do that and pursue him, you can't help but have eternal life or everlasting life. Does that make sense? Does anybody have any questions or comments on chapter 3? Randy. Okay, so it's really not a comment or a question on chapter 3, but I'm sorry, I want to ask this. So, why do you feel or why do you think that that if you really look at the New Testament, you know, God inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired, you know, four or five guys to, you know, write about Jesus on earth and, you know, another guy to write a whole bunch of books that go a whole bunch of different churches and, you know, and then John Revelation. Why do you think that content is like that? Because everybody learns at their own pace is one of the biggest reasons. And there again, you have to understand we're reading when you read, for instance, when you read the epistles from Paul to the churches, you're getting an insight into what was going on in that church for that particular time. And Paul is taking, I shouldn't say Paul, God is taking the opportunity to use Paul to address that church and take the principles of that and expanding it to the universal church, to you and I today. But that's the reason why there are some principles of interpretation and application that are very important to go by. Because, for instance, it's out of the mouth of two or three witnesses that every word should be established. So if there is something in one of the letters to the churches that's only mentioned to that church, it doesn't become a universal doctrine because it's not established by more than one witness. Does that make sense? And so what ends up happening, so these Gospels writers as well, they're writing, well, let me put it to you this way. In my library uh, here in the church, I've got a whole shelf of probably 20 books about Ronald Reagan. And I've got one book that's all of his handwritten notes of, of his. And if you read, and I've read all of them, believe it or not, um, because he was my favorite president. And so I've read all these books about Ronald Reagan, and each person that writes gives a different perspective about this man named Ronald Reagan. If I read Matthew, I'm getting a different perspective of Jesus. Mark is a different perspective. Luke is a different perspective. John is a different perspective. And, and so I believe that God allowed all of these men to write in such a way that through the history of time, the books mesh because the message is the same, but they're coming from different perspectives. And it's the reason why I don't believe that there's any contradictions in Scripture. Um, I think they can all be explained um, because they're not all trying to say the same thing. They're all giving different perspectives of the audience, of the writer. Um, sometimes we forget what the word inspired means. Um, and and we get to this thing that God was just kind of, it was, he, we get this picture almost like the, the writers of the, the, the scripture <clears throat> had voice activated typing, okay? 
And so God just kind of spoke it to them and they just kind of spit out the words that he said. No, there's a flavor of the author or the writer, but the author is the author. Okay? And, and so, um, for lack of a terrible example, is you go to some of these movies that are out there that are like sequels and prequels. You know, you got six or seven, like Star Wars, you have six or seven or eight, whatever. And you can take each one and a lot of the groupings are the same, the characters are the same, but if somebody directed it that was different from another movie, there's always a little bit of a different slant. Or even if the screenwriter, the screenplay writer uh, does it a little bit different, there's a little different, and that's kind of, like I said, it's a terrible example, but that's really what you're getting here is Paul gives us Remember, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, but he's also a Roman citizen. That's a perspective that you don't get from John, because John was a Jew, and he's writing to Greeks. Paul was a Jew and a Roman citizen. So you're getting totally, when you read his letters, and he's writing to churches in Asia. So you're getting all kinds of viewpoints, and to me, what makes that exciting is all of that blends together and still agrees with one another over the course of about 100 years of writing, not including the Old Testament. Old Testament, so you're looking at a thousand some years of writing and putting things together. It has stood the test of time. It has blended so well. And uh, that, and, and so you're getting, it's all the different perspectives that are put into one, and still at the end of it, you get Jesus manifest as God in the flesh. And it's powerful. I, I, I believe, you know, now, again, I was blessed to be raised in a church where Brother Saban preached and te taught on this five times a week. Tuesday night Bible study, Thursday night church, Sunday morning Sunday school, Sunday morning service, Sunday night service. And like I was teasing a couple weeks ago when I was preaching, he had the overhead up and, and tried to diagram. I couldn't read his writing, couldn't tell his illustrations. But man, over eight years of constantly hearing that, nobody's gonna convince me of anything else because it's so in depth in me. And if people could ever get the revelation of the mighty God in Christ, it changes your perspective of living for him. It changes how you pray. It explains why we pray in Jesus' name. It explains why we baptize in Jesus' name. It explains why we do whatsoever you do and whatever you do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Because when you say Jesus, you are covering all the bases. So... Anybody else? Does that help? Yeah. I mean, it's good. Just, you know, when you're talking today, I'm thinking, why is it? You know, but, yeah. but it is. It's, yeah. If you want to remember this scripture, because we're going to go back over it again, but John 17, 3, Pastor Saban dwelt on this scripture forever. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. This is life eternal, that they might know thee. That is what this whole thing is about. It's, it takes, his, there's history in it, there's tragedy in it, there's drama in it, there's sex in it, there's all kinds of stuff in this. If you don't believe me, read Song of Solomon. If all kinds of things that are in this, mysteries, uh, theories, all kind of, everything's in here, 
But the whole purpose of all of it is so that we can know him. This, this is, this should reveal to us who God Almighty is. And if we preach it or read it for any other purpose than to find out who he is in our lives, we've missed, we've missed the target. Everything is about revealing him to us for the purpose, because we'll never be able to think about it. If you can't recognize God today, how are you going to recognize him when the trumpet sounds? That's part of the reason why I believe it says that this is life eternal, that they might know thee. Because if you don't know him, how are you going to recognize his voice when he calls us home? How are you going to recognize the sound of the trumpet? You're just going to see something crazy happen. But if you know him, you've already started your eternal life with him. You're just waiting for him to call. It's, it's like back when I was a kid, you know, we didn't have cell phones. Uh, Mom and dad just yelled out the door, echoing through the neighborhood. It's time for Tim, Trish, or Tim, Jen, I guess Trish wasn't there. Tim, Trill, Jen, Jer. Booming through the, the neighborhood. And then shortly thereafter, you'd hear John Montreal yell for Brian, and you'd hear Bob Lagan, right? Doug, and you know, all of our names were yelled for dinner, you know. We knew the voice of our father or our mother. And when Jesus comes back to earth, we're going to know him because we're the sheep, and he's, he's the shepherd. But if we don't take the time to know him with this and in our prayer and in our experience with the body and the moving of the spirit, if we don't interact with all of that, how are we going to recognize when Jesus comes back? We're not going to hear his voice. I am of this belief.